Welcome to the episode 13 of Curse with Good Ideas. This is a podcast that's always uh, more and more random as days gone by. But uh, we're, um, well, it's been a long month because I think we recorded our past episode a month ago or maybe more. And the past episode, I don't know if you all uh, listened to it, but it was about Wuhan. And we were talking with Dino and uh, another one of his friends. And at that time, it looked like the epidemic was pretty much circumscribed to Wuhan and Hubei and we were saying oh, two months ago exactly two yeah. months ago that's sick well it was uh, posted exactly two months ago so it was recorded like yeah. two also, and a we half ago <coughs> earlier yeah and I remember at the ending we were saying ah oh, we hope everything solves quickly and and then things changed for uh, everyone here so maybe it's uh it's nice to have an episode that's kind of uh just talking about how we're all doing and uh we have two guests today and uh i only i know marianne from uh twitter i don't know if we follow each other but i see your tweets quite a bit oh, maybe because dino <laughs> yeah and twitter fame yeah, yeah. Well, or maybe because uh, dino maybe. has retweeted or replied to some of them or maybe i follow you i don't know but uh andrew yeah, i i, I, I have no likely. idea <laughs> who you are so uh, maybe Hi. maybe Dino or, or Joy can introduce you to everyone and then we'll hear what you're doing. Uh, so I met Andrew in college. Um, we were both oh, okay. uh, studying German and we didn't really become friends until we both went to the same conference in Harvard. So when we were in Harvard, we ran into Edward Lowe. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, we, like there was this cafe and then like me and Andrew were there and like... There was this guy who looked really like uh, Edward Lawrence, so I was like, I was like walking, <laughs> I was like walking up to him, and I was like, "Oh, do you speak Cantonese or something?" And then he was like, "Oh yeah." And then I was like, "Are you Edward Lawrence?" And then he was just like, uh, "He was," he said yes, and then he was like really nice, and then he talked to us. Uh, Edward Long is a Hong Kong politician or like organizer. He's like the first. I, I think he was the first person who, like, apart from like Joshua. No, actually, I think yeah. he's the first person who had, like, the charisma to talk about, um, um, like, Hong Kong independence. And yeah, he yeah. is he was a prosecutor for starting a riot in 2016 in Mong Kok uh, in the New Year. So Was it the fishbowl? Yeah, yeah the, fishbowl the, 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 the yeah. fishbowl yeah. riot. Yeah. Um, so he's in jail right now. So what was he doing in Harvard? Uh, he was uh, on a fellowship. Uh, okay. I, I, and where uh, is he in... Sorry, where is he in jail? Uh, I don't know which prison, but somewhere in, in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong, right? Yeah, in Hong Kong. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you met him before he went to jail. Yeah. Okay. Apparently. I think he was studying at at Harvard or something. Okay. I think like there was a warrant out for his arrest, and then he like went to Harvard to study, and he was like able to go to Harvard before he was arrested. Uh, he told Got us it. that he was. Um, the police keep trying to arrest him before. Like that, he they found out that he was trying to go to America, and they kept like arresting him or something. And like mm -hmm. because when you go to get a visa, you have to show them your police record. Uh, but in the end, somehow, like he got the visa and he was able to go. So it was like the Kennedy Fellowship for half a year. Right. I remember in the like when we were talking to him, like Andrew. I remember like you, like you you came to a realization that like sometimes like Hong Kong people are like Jewish people or something. Why? 
find that. Because, because, like, because... Oh, it's like, as soon as you meet each other, it's like you start... It's like you've known each other for a long time? Uh, I guess it's like this constant political, like, struggle against China. Oh. Right. Oh. So did he... Oh. What, what, what did you talk about with him? Uh, like, he, he just talks about how, uh, like, the, the fishbowl revolution and stuff like that. I don't remember exactly. Okay. I, I think he also just talked about like what his life was like in Boston and how he was like dealing with the move and just uh, to me it was like kind of normal normal things that he was talked about that like he hadn't really found that many people to be friends with yet and I don't know he was very happy to just like I think he even asked us to just sit down and like you know have our coffee with him and he sat with us for a long time just I think discussing like pretty normal things. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's how you met and what are we doing there? There was this undergraduate science conference. Okay. Yeah. So Andrew, what are you what are you doing now? So right now I'm I'm studying infectious disease epidemiology. Oh. Wow, um, okay. I'm at the the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, specifically studying the like, epidemiological control of communicable diseases. Right. So it's like outbreak dynamics and learning about how to control during cases of infectious outbreaks. Cool. Sounds uh, so, very appropriate to the current. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's actually incredibly ironic because my master's in infectious disease control had to come to a pause because an infectious disease was out, was out of control. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was pretty funny for all of us, but also also very sad because we couldn't finish our master. I mean, we're still going to be able to finish our degrees, but we couldn't do um, like face to face learning anymore. So how's it going to work for you? Like you're going to do online classes until it's finished or? Yeah. So luckily, it's it's interesting that the courses I was taking right before this started or during this started was um, class taught by um, by. Uh, Dan Kucharsik, who is um, like a mathematical modeler at LSHTM, and he uh, was teaching like infectious disease modeling, and that was our last, that was one of our last courses. Besides for that, then we have another course called pathogenomics, and then beside, and then so that's the final course that we have, and then we do a master's thesis. Okay. Um, but the thesis, the thesis is probably now going to be COVID related. Not. Um, is not not. It will be. It, it will be. Yeah. I imagine like every student will write about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, because now it, it, it's a little bit hard because it's so fresh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That there's the data is not really available, so there's like, going to be a lot of people doing projects on da data collection and also literature reviews. Yeah. So that's sort of what I've been working on so far with COVID is extracting data from from a bunch of peer-reviewed and preprint um, publications. So as you can imagine, there's so many every day. There's over I think like 50 papers that are being published wow. or that are being released for for um, for preprint. All the papers have a ton of data, but there's no database that really goes through all those papers and extracts the data in a structured way. Yeah. So we've been, I've been working on a team at um, the London School that's been going through all these papers every day, extracting the data and putting it in a structured database for modelers to, to be using. So then that's at least data that people could use for their master's theses. That's cool. That's that's a lot of papers. Yeah. Is it like across disciplines yeah, so or? Many. Yeah. So there's there's like modelers um, who are working on it, and they're uh, so so the papers themselves are mostly like health data, so like transmission, symptoms, um, 
like hospital capacity, uh, viral load. Yeah, those are the kinds of. But like people working on it, there's people who are you know public health. Public health. Well, there's people who studied microbiology. There's like health economic people. So pretty broad. Cool. Just to catch up with uh, where where we all are, like. Where are you guys right now? Because I'm I'm stuck in Norway and I've been here for like three months and I can't really like I can't leave I can't go anywhere so I know that Dino is still in Wuhan I think. What about everyone else? Uh, I'm in Hong Kong. Okay. I'm in X10. X10 oh. like your X and then 10 like the number. It's a tiny ten? little village in northwestern Germany, my okay. hometown. Okay. <laughs> you went. And back. Andrew, I just wanted to ask. I was just curious when you when you were just talking like what what did you do before how did you come to study infectious diseases I don't know um so I studied molecular biology and biochemistry for my undergrad mm -hmm. and then um my mom is actually from Sierra Leone in West Africa mm -hmm. and so during the Ebola crisis I was kept I mean she was still living in Sierra Leone at the time so I was getting very updated all the time on what was going on and it just seemed like a shit show mm -hmm. and so after I graduated I wanted to go to Sierra Leone to build any sort of like di diagnostics capacity for other infectious diseases so you could like detect emerging pathogens before they actually become epidemics so, so that's how I got involved I worked for the the U.S. Naval Research Lab they were building a diagnostics lab in rural Sierra Leone so I went and worked with them there for six months and then I actually went to Berlin. I was at the Max Planck for uh, for infection biology, um, working in more on the bench side of things. And then after that, I decided to get more into it, study more of the epidemiology side of infectious diseases. Cool. But cool. right now I'm actually, I'm not in London anymore. I'm in, uh, I'm in New Jersey. Okay. In the US, outside of Philadelphia. Did you travel those days? Like, yeah, I left uh oh, two weeks ago okay how was traveling in this period um it was super weird yeah um, especially from your point like, of view like how how do you yeah the airports are like completely empty mm -hmm. so, i mean in, in london none no, no stores in the airport were open um it's just really quiet you don't realize how many announcements are made in an airport mm -hmm. like literally it's just normally in airports all all day long there's announcements you never hear like a, a silence and when you can actually just you don't hear an announcement in an airport it feels really weird yeah. like there's something going on so it's something i didn't realize before that then when there's silence you you pick up on that but the actual traveling like my my flight was pretty much empty there were like 20 people on my flight mm -hmm. and then landing back in the u.s things seemed a little bit more normal like stores were open in the airport okay which confused me yeah <laughs> but yeah um and and like every 20 minutes one of the flight attendants came by with a little thing of hand sanitizer it was like <laughs> squirting everyone with hand sanitizer every 20 minutes marianne did you did you also yeah. travel back from china to germany recently oh. no i i just i happened to um come back anyway for for spring festival like oh right oh, for right. spring festival so i i just happened to have a play in the beginning of january anyway so i came back and right after like, a few weeks after i came back it all exploded kind of so i was lucky i kind like in a way lucky and now unlucky that i can't go back i plan to go back in the end of february oh you plan february to go back to hanjo yeah yeah but of course then that didn't happen and then I planned to go back again a few weeks ago, and that, that also didn't happen. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I'm stuck. I was stuck in Berlin until yesterday, and now I um, 
moved to my hometown. Oh, it's, it's your hometown? How's the situation there? I don't know much about Germany. Um, it's... I heard they're doing a lot of testing in Germany, right? Probably, yeah. Well, they have this rule that they're not testing people who have not... Um, they need to have symptoms and they have to be... Uh, they had contact with an uh, infected person that has been tested positively. Okay. And these symptoms have to include fever of like 39 uh, Celsius. Thirty-nine. That's, that's really like the, the threshold, and um, that's what they used to have. As yeah, they wouldn't test anybody else. But then, of course, you can always lie. You can always tell them you have yeah. thirty-nine, and then they will test you. In the beginning, there were a lot of people testing, but now it's not that much anymore. I, I kind of happen to know because my best friend is working. or used not anymore, but she used to work at, like the last few weeks in the Corona ambulance of a hospital in Berlin, and I was living with her. And she was like there every day and testing people. That was basically her job. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I think that's uh, yeah, the situation is more people. It's not really serious in, in terms of deaths mm-hmm. or really like a lot of sick people. It's like it's increasing a little bit, but it's not a big. It's not a big panic about that. It's just everybody's kind of staying at home. And um, I don't think I don't I haven't really felt any a lot of panic or something around. Not anymore, at least. Right. People are just kind of like bored staying home. The thing I find to be really cool about or interesting with Germany is that I heard from a friend that they do like home testing. So like if you're if you say that you have a 39 fever or whatever and that you had a contact, like they come to your house to test you, which I find to be incredible compared to like what it is in the US or what it was in the UK. It's like like in order to get tested, you need to go somewhere else, which then like poses a risk for you to get it if you don't already have it you know yeah. sounds pretty cool yeah. i haven't i haven't yeah. experienced that so much around but i know that a friend of mine had his doctor give him his test so he could do the test himself but of course that went wrong it's not that easy to test yourself you have well, to really you have go to like put like thing. a huge swab in your yeah. nose right like if you have to do it yeah, yourself yeah. really deep like yeah. i got tested myself and I, it's really like i almost i almost died of coughing just from like doing the process of testing because it was so bad. So I don't think people could do it themselves, actually. They wouldn't do it properly. Yeah. Andrew, what are the differences between the different tests? Like, there are some that can, like, have results in, like, a very short time, but, like, some seems to, like, have a much longer turnaround time. Yeah, so there's, like, the RT-PCR test, which is the only one that I think is used. I think, like, Europe and the United States is still using an RT-PCR test, which is looking which stands for reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction. So it like is looking if you have any RNA of the virus, mm-hmm. so like any viral RNA in your mm-hmm. body. Um, so it doesn't tell you if you're symptomatic. It doesn't tell you if you're transmitting the virus. All it says is like, is there a virus in your body? Mm-hmm. And that takes, I mean, every, it depends on like the protocols for each country. But theoretically, the process takes maybe like three, four hours, but most countries are not getting results for like three, at least three days, um, at least in the United States and in Europe. Um, but the process itself, a couple hours, and it's also nice because you, you could do batch testing. So like for one day, a hospital could do all the testing for, for everyone, collect all the swabs, and then do all the, the, the RT-PCR tests all at the same time, and then get all the results at the same time. Then the other test that's like kind of the revolutionary test, in, in, in for especially for infectious diseases, because then you can see who's recovered, is doing um, serological tests. So looking at to see if people have antibodies, which would show you if they've already ha- been infected and then if they've recovered from the infection. And so if you have a serological test, 
that takes like five minutes. You just prick your finger, drop a little bit of blood onto a little test pan, and then if you're positive, there's you, you very quickly see, I don't know if anyone, it's like similar to a pregnancy test, or if anyone has ever had like, um, like strep throat, like when you have strep on your tonsils, it, it's done the same way, or like, um, like a P test is just basically there's viral antigen that's bound, like viral protein, is bound onto a onto a material. You drop your blood in, and if you have antibodies in your blood for the virus, it'll bind to that part of the material where the viral proteins are, and then you wash it off. And if anything is left behind, you know you have pro- you have your antibodies are binding to that protein. Do you think you? And that takes yeah. really short. That's like, and then they can make those super quickly, and like they would have like I don't know. They can make them fast, and you could buy them at the store. You could buy them on Amazon. Did you, do you think you got it? If, if yeah, the, got the it. COVID. <laughs> you could you could like go to get tested for it, right? But but that, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so just quickly, like I I was sick for about a, a week when I was in London, mm-hmm. um, and I had a friend. This was the beginning of in the middle of March. It was March 18th when I first was symptomatic. Um, I had a high fever for three days, felt really shitty, um, had like chest tightness, had really like weird back pain. But I had a friend who had cooked for me four days earlier, and two days after he cooked for me, he told me that he was symptomatic. Oh, shit. Um, and he had just been working with a friend who had just gotten back from northern Italy like a week earlier. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. he... So, there's a nice there's a nice transmission tra- chain and so i think i i had it i was never tested because the uk officially still isn't testing anyone unless you're a critical case and like dying in a hospital mm. so all those cases that you see that the uk is reporting are critical cases so imagine all the cases that actually exist yeah. that they're not testing so i like, compare that to the us who's actually like okay the us has gotten a lot of shit for its testing capacity, but it's actually much, 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 much better than what the UK has been doing. Yeah. The UK is only testing people who are critical cases. Yeah, that, I think Italy anyways, is like, Italy's doing a lot of tests, but my understanding is that they're limited by the capacity of labs that can do the tests. Like, even if they have the materials, there is like, they can't do more than, I don't know, 40, 50,000 a day, like physically. Yeah. I don't know is if that's... Is it the same yeah. for the UK? Is it because of the lack of tests or laboratory space? or? La- uh, what I read is that I think it's, it's laboratory. Political. You think it's political? Because I, I, I don't know much I think it's about political it. Because, I think it's political because it's it's bullshit to say that there's not enough um, an, enough testing, like, uh, like machines, yeah. because almost every molecular biology lab has an RT-PCR thermocycler. Okay. It is like one of the most basic machines now to have in a lab and so like at at the london school there's a ton of labs that definitely have thermocyclers people instead of being in the labs testing cases they're at home like working from home right like instead the what, what the 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 uk did do like a volunteer reach out to ask people who molecular biologists who can run rtpcr to help um for testing but there's still so much more capacity that could be done. I mean, especially in the U.S., they say that they say the same thing that there's just not the capacity for it. But like, I have friends who are who study bi- who are doing PhDs in bioengineering and who have great labs with great equipment that have definitely have RT-PCR thermocyclers and have all the materials to be running the test, which you can buy. I looked it up. You can buy the actual kits on the internet right now for two hundred dollars for fifty for fifty reactions. Okay. So yeah, the materials are available because you can buy them online. That's interesting because um, it's. Uh, I mean, because I'm not an expert, but all I read was in the beginning they were saying there were not enough materials. And then some stories came out that actually Italy has a lot of materials and it's selling them to the U.S. And then they were like, 
No, really? actually, we don't have enough labs. The labs are overworked and they have to do other things. But yeah, that's an interesting thing to know that it's probably politically uh, enforced. Or, and, 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 yeah. and I don't know if it's be- politically because like there's a there's a secret in, um, like uh, there's something negative about it, but it could just be disorganization. Like, yeah, no yeah, one yeah. is stepping up to the plate to organize something to have people who are bio people who are doing their PhDs in bioengineering who just haven't been able to go to the lab last week at home reading papers whereas they could be test helping test people yeah well yeah it might be there is no structure to actually collect tests or yeah. yeah and that's the thing is a lot of them like the cdc like requires to test every single te- um to to confirm every single case like even if you get it confirmed in your own lab you then need to send it to the cdc to have that confirmed so that's, that's an issue bottleneck Got it. yeah it's actually like the same issues happening to me right now because um i'm trying to get out of city yeah because yeah. you need it basically now your test report is your visa to get out of the city uh-huh. you can't get out of the city without a test report you have to do the new nucle- uh, the nucleus acid test you have to do uh, the antibody test uh i think some in some cases you have to have both in some cases, you only need one, and um, it depends on which but province you're like, heading to. If you have, uh, like, you said, you need two tests. Like, which two tests? Like the two kinds, or two tests, like in different times? Oh, like the yeah, I think you said it. The the nucleic acid test and the antibodies. But if oh, you don't yeah. have antibodies, yeah, I mean, well, it's fine. That it means well, you didn't get. That's it. why. Oh, right, yeah, right, that's right. why it's not compulsory in some cases, but in some provinces, it is compulsory. So every province okay. have its own rules uh, for people coming out of Wuhan. So it's it's like yeah, that's basically now the city is pathologically speaking uh, independent because uh, sure. every province has has its own policy against uh, uh, people coming out of the city, and um, and also because you have to have a, sort of a a, a summarized uh, report uh you can't just go to any institution and get a report and uh so that institution have to be rep- recognized by the provincial government of the uh, province that you're heading to and uh every province is not very really clear about this so in some cases people have a report uh they went to the hospital they got tested and then they're heading to wherever they're going say uh Guangdong and then after that, they're like in, after they're in Guangzhou, they don't recognize the report, so they get quarantined again uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> for like fourteen days, and then they have to get tested again there. So it's uh, yeah, pretty complicated. Every province. I mean, the most strict rules are for uh, Beijing. If you're going to uh, the city, uh, the capital, then you have to have like uh, I think this limited 1000 per day so mm. like only 1000 wuhan people would be would be allowed entering the city at each day uh, so they would not allow more than that even if you have a test report so even if you have a positive test for the antibodies you're not like free to go anywhere in in, in china it depends on the each police uh, province policy uh, at the beginning yeah. it used to be because they had the qr code thing like uh so basically uh, it's like a it's not really useful because it's basically uh, if you can't come out of say two months of quarantine, you you instantly get a green code and because you're supposedly healthy because uh, it's been two months, right? So, but after that, uh, you have yeah. to scan your code wherever you go in the city, and then uh, whenever someone's infected, your code will become yellow or, or red. 
So they would check the code initially. That was the rule. But uh, the, uh, the other provinces did not.、Um, basically, at provincial levels, they decided that they're not going to trust that system. That's why、uh, there was a riot a while ago, like several weeks ago, that happened between、uh, Hubei and another neighboring province. People trying to getting to、uh, to enter the other province, but、um, the other province police did not trust the green code, so they had to had to fight.、Uh, so the two two provincial police force had a huge riot against each other, and、um, so、uh, yeah, so that's、uh, that's why now every province on basically on its own、uh, trying to set up its own rules and its own quarantine quarantine rules as well as how. How they're gonna deal with the reports and what they require. I mean, supposedly if you tested positive for antibodies, you should be fine. Because, but、um, that's just even the report is not trusted、uh, in certain places. So there's no universal rule、uh, across the country. It all depends on where you're going to. Sounds like something that could happen in the U.S., right? Like a federal model of each province having, like each state having their own rules. And I don't know how it's gonna play out in the U.S., but. I can imagine. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. It's interesting because it sounds like the China's already, or at least、um, Hubei is like has this system of of like like Germany and the UK have talked about carrying around like this little certification that's like, oh, I've already had, I've already had、yeah. coronavirus. Like, let me free. Like, this is my get out of free, get out of jail free card. Like, I'm allowed to now walk around. That would and, be cool. <laughs> yeah. But、um, it also tends, like, if you think about it, it really can turn into a dystopia where, like, people who have already had the virus get to be free and they get to work and they get to provide services. And then the people who haven't had the virus, it's like, well, maybe they want to get the virus so that、yeah. they can already recover and become <laughs> one of these like people who gets to walk around freely again and gets to go to the parks and gets to see their friends. <laughs> So, that would make a big business know, opportunity for people who actually have the virus. Yeah, like they could sell themselves for like helping people, and are like, say you're an old person and you need help around the house. Like if you've already had the virus, you don't, you can't transmit it to them. If you have a certification that says that, like you won't, you can't transmit the virus anymore. You get a working opportunity to go work in some old person's home who's afraid of still getting the virus. Yeah, that's wild. You know. But what about is there so for coronavirus? Is there like I've heard some cases where there's reinfection, but I don't know if that is real or not. Yeah, maybe Andrew. Yeah,、knows. yes. So there were a couple of cases that came out in China at the beginning that showed reinfection, and it confused everyone. But since those cases, which happened in late January, there haven't been any other cases、um, or reports of people being reinfected. So they they think that means that you immunity is at least、um, as long as is. Lasts long. I mean, they don't know if it's lifelong. Many infections aren't really lifelong immunity, but at least a few、um, months or or years, right? But years, years yeah. yeah. I mean, like some like things like measles. I mean, that's like your lifelong. But there are things that 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 aren't lifelong. But they're showed through monkey trials. So they like took coronavirus, isolated it, cultured it, and then infected it in monkeys. Then saw what their reaction was, and then saw what their antibody like titer. So like the amount of Antibodies they're producing and how long it lasts for, and there's two different, there's many different types of antibodies, but one of them is lifelong. It's supposed to be lifelong memory antibodies, and those are those they showed were produced in these monkeys,、mm -hmm. which means that theoretically we are supposed to get lifelong immunity. Okay, great. That would be awesome. Well, what you know, about? Do you want、yeah. to?、Uh, <laughs> 
what about what do you think about how long will it take for us to develop vaccines? So long. <laughs> For us, like the pod, yeah. the I podcast. I mean, like for no, for like the the yeah. world to have uh, vaccines. Podcast team, yeah, do I... something useful. Develop <laughs> vaccines. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I think a super long time. I think people are saying maybe eighteen months or something. Because not only, I mean, one one thing that's possible is that you use a vaccine that's already being produced um, that can like confer some sort of protection. Mm-hmm. So people were talking about BCG, which is the vaccine used for tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even though tuberculosis is a vaccine against a bacterium, so against mycobacterium, um, there have been many, many studies that show that this BCG vaccine, which was developed in the early 1900s, um, gives you some nonspecific immunity to viruses. Mm. And so there's trials going on right now in in the Netherlands and Australia with healthcare workers um, giving them the BCG vaccine and seeing if that gives them any sort of protection to coronavirus. If that does, then it'll be really easy to get a vaccine out because then the vaccine is already something that exists. If there's already... It's already in production. There's also like there's huge stockpiles of the vaccination of, of the BCG vaccine, so that would be easy. But to create a whole new vaccine, that's really complicated because then you need to do you know clinical trials, and that t- takes a really long time. And then also upping the production so you can get it where it's a, at a point where it's available to everyone is like really really a huge public issue and and like in class issue like. If you can only get a certain number of vaccines, who who gets to who gets access to those vaccines? Which countries get access to those vaccines? So, and even when you think of things, I mean, there there's an Ebola vaccine right now, and yet there's still Ebola epidemics. Yeah, mm-hmm. like in Congo, yeah. there's I mean, the vaccine has been out for the last what two two years, and like there's still Ebola epidemics because people don't trust vaccines because of issues of giving people the vaccine. So even if there is a vaccine, it doesn't mean that it's a solved pandemic for everyone. Dino, do you want to introduce Marianne? Because we still yeah. haven't. Yeah. How did you meet? Uh, we are uh, being friends on Twitter, and then uh, we met in Hangzhou. Uh, oh, okay. Marianne is doing a PhD there, and um, uh, yeah, uh, she's doing a PhD in uh, uh, Chinese law. Oh, okay. Yeah. At which university is that? Uh, Zhejiang University. Hard- well, what? Dino is hopefully going to work soon. <laughs> Join me in Hangzhou. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's gonna, I, yeah, he'll he'll be able to move there at some point. Yeah. Yeah. What is your um, PhD in? I'm writing about the social credit system. Oh, right. Okay. That's why I follow you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 (laughs) How far are you? That's my topic. I just kind of got started my first year. Like now I'm also working for the University of Cologne. Um, They have a research project on that. And I'm just, I did it in my master's already, which is when I got started working on the subject. But it's so complicated and so vast. And I'm still just trying to kind of find out like just delimit what all like what amounts like what counts as a social credit system and what is something else and all these different terms that are used in Chinese which are not yeah. translatable yeah. to English there's like a ton of different words and they all have some certain meaning but I'm still trying to figure out like what all these different words stand for and then with what context they appear and right now I'm reading a lot from a guy called uh, Lin Junyue who was one of the first um, ones who came forward with this idea of the social credit system and trying to push it forward in 1999 and then um, trying to read his papers to make uh, to try to understand where he came from like what what problem did he see and how did he try to solve it and how did he come up with this idea yeah that's yeah funny. it's it's a topic I read a, a little bit about it and it's one of those topics where there is a lot of things being written but it's really hard to find uh, one good conclusive thing on it 
because there's always I don't think there is one ambiguity like in my <laughs> yeah 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 it's difficult you have to read at least like st don't read the uh, the media don't yeah read, of course yeah, yeah. like yeah. press yeah. stuff it's all pretty much all really bad yeah but then there's uh, some researchers who've written some good things about it like yeah. at least correct things about it and then if you really want to know about it, if you really want if you're interested and want to figure out more um the china law translate yeah yeah that one i read Dong yeah they have good Gale. Yeah. That one's really good. He has a well, lot of articles. Well, and he looks at it very much from a legal perspective, but yeah. like, yeah. But he translates about it, so at least there is a, yeah, something yeah. to it to, to know. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So now you're pitched. How is it working for you not being able to go back? Well, it's, for me, actually, nothing really changed okay. when it comes to my work before, because I wasn't, like, I would have taken probably some classes, but not mm -hmm. related to the social credit system, just because I like to take classes in yeah, I are you in a, my work. Like what, in my research, I can do from anywhere. I can be wherever. I just need internet and my computer and then Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. true. Did you have coronavirus? I had it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I am a Juanjo. I was infected, but I got released from quarantine, I think two weeks now, two weeks ago or something now. So. Did you have it in China or in Germany? In Germany. Okay. In Germany. Okay. As I said, I left How China long? in the beginning of January, so I was lucky. I was—I don't know where I got it from. People keep asking me that question. I have no idea. I think I got it from my grandpa, which is super funny because he is staying at home all the time. He's like, he like I was there to care for him because he can't really—he can't even go to the toilet anymore. So I have no idea how he caught it. Okay. He maybe it's from some doctor who came sometime, and who was uh, in the hospital before. Yeah. I think be. I got it from him, but I don't really know. How long of a quarantine did they did they ask you to take after you were diagnosed? Um, they told two weeks, but because everything is a bit slow in Germany and these authorities were kind of overwhelmed with everything, they just told me this after one week already. So they called me up one week after I took the test and told me I was positive. I knew before that I was positive because my as my friend worked in that hospital, she had access like online access to the test results oh. early on, so she could check and she told me that I'm positive. But then they called me and were like, oh, yeah, there's just one week left. And then if I don't have any symptoms, I can go out again, like to buy stuff at least. So if you didn't have symptoms, they said you could go out and you'd be fine. Or they say like, wait, like 72 hours or something after your last symptomatic day. When I first got tested, the rule was the um, rule they had was still that I had to take a test after two weeks. And it was ne if it was negative, I had to oh. wait another week and then they would take another test. And if that one is negative, then I can go out. But wow. they changed the rule during my quarantine, so now you don't need to take these negative tests in the end anymore. They just say two weeks, and then if you don't have symptoms for, I think, 70 hours or something, then you can go out. Okay, okay, uh, cool. So in Hong Kong, probably running in, out of tests. In Hong Kong, they changed, I think they changed the number of days for people in the quarantine um, building to 10 days, because I think they're not having enough space, I, I think. But I... I I'm not sure if this is the reason. For people in the quarantine center, like people that are quarantined, not at home. I think I think so. I'm yeah. not I'm not entirely sure if it's both, but I think it's in the quarantine center. How's I heard that people in Hong Kong are not quarantined at home at all if they get tested positive. They always have to go to quarantine centers. Is that right? I just I th I th yeah, I think so. They're they, like they don't stay at home. They're sent to the quarantine center. Oh, okay. Wow. Cool. Crazy. How's the situation in Hong Kong? Different. Mm -hmm. you, your mom is a is a doctor, right? Yeah, she like uh, today we have like 
11, 15 cases or 11 cases. I don't I don't remember. It's like under 20. So uh, okay. it's a good sign. But then Hong Kong is like, it has a much smaller population and it's easier to control. But uh, my mom was like, she was like, Joy, can you guess how many cases there is in Singapore today? And then I was like, 100. And then she was like, no, it's like 287. And then she, she was like asking wow, okay. me if I can guess because she's like, she knows that I wouldn't be able to guess because there are so many. But like if Hong Kong had uh, in a single day had 287 cases, it will not be able to handle it. It will just immediately paralyze a whole like healthcare yeah. system because it's already like exploded. Yeah, I didn't know Singapore had that many. I thought they pr- they had it pretty much under control. No, they um so what happened was I I heard from a Singaporean friend. So that was they started to explode after all the uh the the Singaporean expats returned from mm-hmm. overseas like UK and um uh, Europe well, U.S. whatever, because the Singaporean government uh, told their citizens to return after yeah. the U.S. and uh, Europe exploded. So uh, they all went back, and uh, a lot of people tested positive. Yeah, and, so that's um, a lot of return, return cases. Yeah, and the lockdown measures were pretty late. But it was mainly because there was a building yeah. where, like, people, like, foreign workers were living in a very, incl- like, very dense Place, and I think a lot of people in that building got uh, infected. Yeah, that sounds very mm-hmm. much Singapore. There's a, there's a really nice article the New York Times had yesterday that with the headline of why coronavirus cases have spiked in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan. And it talks, it like shows really nice data for like travel data and when like people started, like these people were returning back to Singapore and when cases started spiking. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a good read. You guys yeah, I know. I know the Taiwan case because I was there in January the last time, and then they they were already checking planes and temperature at the airport back then. And the the big spike was exactly like a couple of weeks ago, and there were basically all return cases from Europe or the US. It's probably similar to what happened in Singapore and Hong Kong. Yeah, if you look at the cases of Singapore, it's like they've more than tenfold increase in the first weeks of April compared to the first weeks of the first weeks of March. Yeah, like it's. Explosive. What's the Andrew? What's the most like from your point of view? What's the most interesting or fascinating or striking thing in all of this? Like I don't know, because for people who are not who don't know anything about medicine, it's just a lot of a lot to like learn and take in. But for you who study this, it, what's the like? Is yeah. it normal? Like and everything expected, or there is something interesting and new? So I'd say there's two things. One is it's been a little bit disheartening that during like there are people who have spent their entire careers preparing for a pandemic yeah. like this, but because of politics, like all of the things that they prepared for aren't able, and the things that they've learned and things people have PhDs in, right. they weren't able to implement any of those things because of politics. So that's really sad because you think like, wow, like if there are people out there who know what the right thing to do, they should be able to do it, especially for a pandemic when like, you know, millions of people will die. Yeah. And so it's been very sad to see that because of politics and economics, when even even when you know the right things, when you know what are the right things to do, um, those those measures can't be put in place because people have political um, battles. The other thing that I think has been interesting about this, on a more of a biology perspective, is that the virus is is a very very smart virus because. Um, if, if, if something becomes more deadly, yeah. uh, to have a higher case fatality ratio, so more dying for each case, it becomes much easier to identify the cases, isolate the cases, um, and prevent them from transmitting to others. So that's why something like SARS um, 
didn't transmit as much as COVID because it was it was a deadlier case. Yeah, uh, it, it had a de- deadlier presentation. And like Ebola, for example, like Ebola is very deadly. It's like a 50 percent case fatality ratio. Yeah, but because COVID has such a low case fatality ratio, but it's still deadly enough that it's going to cause a lot of issues for for our, our world and cause the death of millions of people. Um, it is because it's so good at being asymptomatic and causing mild symptoms. It's impossible to identify and isolate cases. Yeah. So, but if you if you have a virus that kills people, but also is has this cloaking mechanism where it you can't identify it. I mean, it's it, it's an amazing virus because you can't unless you're going to, unless you have such amazing testing capacity where you can test every single person, if, even if they're asymptomatic. There's no way that you're going to be able to control this thing. Um, until everyone just becomes immune to it. Yeah, and also because there is this uh, like offset between when you're infected and then you become probably contagious but not symptomatic, and so it's like impossible yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why do you think the coronavirus is, is it normal for viruses to like? Um, so I sent you this paper earlier today, and I think the gist of it was basically that coronavirus is able to secrete from its uh, nucleus a, a, a new protein that uh, paralyzes. The, your natural interference, which is like your innate immunity. So this is what makes it so deadly. Do you think it is normal for like viruses to act like this? Yeah, so like viruses, the way that most of, I mean, this specific mechanism probably is unique for coronavirus, but like other viruses interfere in innate immunity. So like with your chemokines and like hiding itself. So by like deactivating macrophages or by deactivating proteins and neutrophils, it's able to hide inside of your body. So that like, typically, you know, there are, there are so many different viruses that your body is constantly fighting that don't cause infection. But every once in a while, you get infected with a virus that does cause infection. And most likely, it's because it is able to, to hide from your immune system at, a, at a, to, enough to a point where then it's able to cause a clinical illness in you. Um, but like your, your neutrophils, which are part of like your body's first line of defense against viruses through using chemokines so like uh, interferon gamma it's able to control viruses but there definitely are viruses some of the most deadly viruses are the ones that are able to to prevent that like protein translation or or the rna for that protein that's transcription by interacting with chemokines so are there do you know any viruses are like as similar to coronavirus uh, in how it's capable of creating such a long asymptomatic period. Um, yeah, a lot of viruses are asymptomatic for a very long time. Oh, right, right. Uh, HIV is a perfect yeah. example. Yeah. Um, yeah. HIV is the, the thing. It's like eighty. I don't actually don't remember the number, but a majority of people who have HIV are asymptomatic. Um, they'll never develop AIDS. It's not just. I mean, HIV. There's also like herpes virus, um, HPV. Uh, certain types of hepatitis, they also can be asymptomatic. But there's been coronaviruses like before this, right? Like uh, H1N1 yeah, and SARS and this was SARS, before. yeah. So SARS, H1N1 is a flu, is influenza. Oh, it was not, uh, um, it was not coronavirus? H1N1. It was the no, MERS, right? It was MERS. Right? Oh, MERS. Yeah. So MERS and SARS are the two deadly coronaviruses. Now, now COVID-19 or SARS, whatever, two yeah. is... Now there's three deadly coronaviruses, but there are also the four additional um, commonly circulating coronaviruses that ca- that cause common colds. Okay. And so those are constantly being cycled through through populations. They cause you a, a cold. You get over it quickly. Those four 
this is why people were worried about immunity. We don't get immunity to those four coronaviruses. Okay. So the ones that are common colds, we don't develop a strong enough immune response to, to, to have lifelong immunity against them, which is why we're able to constantly, which is why we're able to, to be reinfected with them. The other three, I'm not, I'm not sure about MERS, SARS, but those are, they're, they're the more deadly in coronaviruses. And they all come from bats. Bats, like, are loaded with coronaviruses. Cool. It's, uh, Vince said um, coronavirus is bat AIDS, which I, I think is a very good name. But I think they don't even get sick from them, right? It's because, like, they, they consume blood or something. I read some stuff about this, like, why bats are loaded with coronavirus because they're very maybe strong like they can resist more viruses because of their the, diet the body temp the body temperature is higher than humans oh, might be i don't know I don't so they're like the normal body temperature is probably like say 38 thousand mm. degree i don't know if even 40 so they they sort of yeah they really that sort of leave naturally with viruses and but they don't develop infections but anyway uh i want to talk about a bit about like herd immunity what do you think about like uh herd immunity does it actually will we when will we actually reach that point say in different countries uh say i mean maybe in europe we'll probably get to that point faster because uh the infection i mean there's so many people got infected in, uh, in europe but uh in other places not so much so yeah so really uh, i don't know like that's why as a strategist i mean as a general strategist does it how does it pan out in the i don't know like short term and long term future so i think herd immunity is eventually i mean it, it, it will happen eventually because basically like that is what prevents like viruses need other hosts to transmit other people to transmit to other people so like people are the stepping of the stepping stones it's like the pathway to infecting more people if you like are if people are getting infected and they're recovering from their infection and getting immunity the virus has less people to jump through to to, to infect and to jump from one to another to another so eventually there's the, the gaps between people become too large and so it's not able to make a large enough jump to another person so the every virus every every virus has a different hurt, um, range of what quantifies its herd immunity so like measles for example i think you need like 95 percent of people to be infected to have herd immunity they're saying for coronavirus maybe it's like 80 percent of people need to be infected to develop a herd immunity and but I mean, it depends exactly what you said. It depends on if it's short term or long term. So if we continue with these um, social distancing and isolating um, and keeping the economy closed and preventing people from going to work, then it'll be much better for the healthcare system and less people will die, but it also will take longer for us to get to this herd immunity level threshold, which of course is the better option then which is alternative of like letting everyone get infected or completely overloading the hospitals but then eventually but much 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 faster people develop immunity because they get infected quicker and then you have herd immunity perfect world you would figure out who can get the infection without getting a clinical disease allow them to be, be infected develop an immunity and the people who are more severe cases keep tell them like, okay, you need to like you you will be a severe case. You have comorbidities. You're elderly population. You need to stay inside, not talk to anyone. And then, but you let the people who who can recover from it get sick. And then they they they're strong. They, they build this herd immunity. And then the people once that becomes eighty percent, then the people who are vulnerable can come and rejoin the community without having fear of getting infected. Mm -hmm. 
So is herd immunity like one option that is recognized like as a possible strategy in epidemiology? Because what I've seen is just, you know, gov- government yeah. saying, oh, we, we, we will go this route or not. But I don't know if it's a, like, scientifically. For sure. Yeah, okay. Yes. Like when designed vaccine campaigns, they design vaccine campaigns based off of um, the herd immunity level. So like, because if they if they can't reach the herd immunity with a vaccine, yeah. there's no point in giving the vaccine because then you're not going to prevent the disease. So like you need to reach the herd immunity for a vaccine, like for that to prevent, um, prevent the diseases. So like measles is the perfect example yeah. because you need to vaccine enough people to reach herd immunity. And like the reason why we're getting, we were getting many measles outbreaks in the United States is because less and less people we're getting vaccinated. Okay. So the herd immunity threshold is still like ni- is still at like ninety five percent, but less but not less than ninety five percent of people were getting um were getting vaccinated, which meant that there were then the gaps between people were, were decreasing. So the virus was able to it was able to more successfully infect people who weren't vaccinated. Yeah, but it's like this is like using like when you use the vaccine, you're working towards herd immunity, but like yeah, in just going for herd immunity as a strategy is that like a viable thing like we don't have a vaccine and we probably won't have it yeah. for 18 months 12 to 18 months so yeah. like if a country says okay we will go for herd immunity how that's basically like yeah. giving up no i don't know exactly yeah. a country saying we're going to go for herd immunity is basically saying let's just let everyone get yeah. sick yeah. but as, as long and but the the like so the reason why the uk initially said this is because they're like okay let's let everyone like what i just previously yeah, yeah, yeah. said Let's let everyone get infected except the vulnerable population. Yeah. The issue is you can't you there's no way to, to figure out who is a vulnerable population right now. Yeah, also because it scales up so much, right? Like in Italy in the beginning, people yeah. got infected and of course the most critical cases were all older old elderly people, so you could say, Okay, let's keep the elderly at home. But when you have Uh, hundreds of thousands or even millions of cases then younger people will get critical as well like in percentage right yep there's another issue that uh, i've been observing in wuhan like so like a lot of uh, people i know younger people especially talking about herd immunity they don't trust it as a sort of a working strategy so in that sense Mm. the people who are supposed to get sick uh in that strategy like the younger and healthy ones they are super scared that don't want to get sick and the people who are supposed to be vulnerable are just walking around on the street right now, not even wear a mask properly. So it's quite funny. I walked past a, I walked past a bank recently. So because the city had been uh, locked down for like more than two months, so the people who don't know on online banking are most li- likely the elderly population. So all these people uh, crowded the banks trying to get the, I don't know, like do some banking because oh, wow. they don't know online banking. So it's long outside all the banks and all the bank tellers inside wearing like full on hazmat, uh, f- hazmat suit <laughs> yeah. with oxygen tanks. It's like <laughs> wow. even more extreme than, uh, uh, even more extreme than ICUs. Uh, um, so I was like watching outside I mean, like, uh, I didn't, well, I didn't want to get too close. That's an intensive capital unit. But but yeah, but that's fucked up because because uh, all the security guard uh, outside the banks they were just wearing like the most basic surgical mask with no gloves or anything. They're just touching everything and all the, all the people they're supposed to keep a distance from each other. So they so there's somebody like the security guards trying to like telling people to queue uh, like 
keep a distance of like a meter or a meter and a half or something but you know like most people not complying with the rules and uh um that yeah and i was like yeah i walked past them with my friend i was like these, these people are practicing herd immunity um uh, <laughs> yeah. i don't know like mm-hmm. so either they're already immune but i mean i I don't know. This is sort of anecdotal, anecdotal evidence that um, friend of mine, his company tested everyone. Uh, there were like 60 employees and 40 of them tested positive for antibodies. So For, 40 wow. out of 60? Like, yeah. yeah. So, that, I mean, that's... And they didn't that's, know... They, and they didn't have positive COVID um, tests before? Yeah, no one is positive out of 60. Wow. So, wow, that's amazing. So so what happened? I, 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 I was, I was going to say that I think I, I read something that said that Iceland was reporting... They're testing like everyone yeah, as well, yeah. um, and they show that I think like fifty percent of people have been uh, like fifty percent of the general population have already been infected. Yeah, I read that as well. Which I don't know. It's how do you like again? Totally ignorant about modeling, but how when you see these numbers, how do you compare the fact that there's like models that say okay, this people are infect this part of the population is infected and blah blah, but then there's there's other results that might point to the fact that actually like half of the population of a country might have already been infected and having it and having antibio uh, like having um being immunized already antibodies yeah. yeah how is it is it possible like is it yeah, so it's like even though fifty percent of people might might be asymptomatic cases, yeah, it still means I mean the rest of the world is the other fifty percent, and that's right. still what like three and a half billion people or something. Yeah, so like that's because of the like it's still um, a lot of people who are vulnerable for it. Yeah, like, but like the model still. If, if, if Iceland, for example, has already like half of the population who is immunized, then we need to be actually quite close to having herd immunity from this. No, no, no. So, so sorry. It's so fifty percent of Iceland isn't already isn't already um, doesn't already have immunity. It's that through testing, they're finding that fifty percent of people they're testing have immunity. Okay. So they've only tested. I think they've tested now like um, like fifteen percent of their population. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I thought they tested all, all the population and then they got fifteen percent. No. Oh, okay, 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 okay. No, no, no. So there's still a lot of people who are vulnerable. There's still a lot of people who are vulnerable Um, but what they're showing is that around like 50% of cases are asymptomatic right okay 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 got it Uh, I wanted to ask Marianne uh, about her uh, her research because I'm doing um, I'm I started a new project that's about artificial intelligence machine vision in China and I'm thinking about how this will impact my project because a lot of there's a lot of talk about technology and artificial intelligence using it for uh, modeling and prevention and whatever what about social credit system because it's kind of a closed topic but are you seeing any like things are changing because of this virus or are there uh, implications for the social credit system and the pandemic um i think of course you can you may see things like this app they use in hangzhou for example to yeah. to yeah. Um, you have to show at many places that you have this green code. Yeah. These, all yeah. these things. This can, this might be seen as one kind of um, like another branch or another pilot of the social credit system because yeah. I mean, it's a big yeah. idea. It's the same thing. It's all. It's about um, getting like somehow watching over people and then seeing like according to like use. It's a, it's a bit it's a bit complicated to answer because the social credit system is such a vast project. So it's very hard to say. That it's somehow related, but I remember I also read over that and was like, oh wow, this if this was if there was like if there was this centralized system which doesn't ex- exist yet, this was this would definitely be a very very strong 
tool to use even in other cities. Hangzhou was quick to develop an app just for that, but yeah. then if yeah. you had the system, it would be very so much easier to see where everybody is and what everybody's doing and who everybody's seeing and everything. So, but this is again, this is a, like there are some um, pilot projects in lo localities who have a more comprehensive version of the system, which also comprises technological things like that, like surveillance cameras, who like this typical example of people jaywalking and then yeah. Um, yeah. having points deducted from their from their scores and stuff. But this is like happening in some pilot projects, like in Rongcheng City is the imported, the most famous one everybody's talking about all the time. But um, this is ne neither, uh, like there is, are there any plans on the central level mm -hmm. that this is going to be adopted nationwide? Nor, like there are also very few very good arguments against that because in the end, for example, if I don't know if you if you're a bank and you decide to give somebody a loan, you might not care so much about whether this person jaywalks or not. You might really just be interested in how they how they deal with their financial transactions and how they how they handle these things. So, like a central score for everybody is not it's not necessarily that much of a help for the yeah. system itself. Yeah. Yeah, so it's sure. always yeah, like sure. a bit and always like the the social credit system is also. Um, um, oftenly conflated with this idea of surveillance, mm -hmm. like this, all these techno technologies you see tested in China everywhere or in different places, but it's not necessarily connected yet. And of course, they're they're like um, like in all documents about everything in China, they always say, "Oh, we need to use new technologies to make it even better." This yeah. is like the yeah. rhetoric yeah, they yeah. use every time, yeah. but there's still no. It's still not that far. It might be, but. Um, in which form and how is is not really clear yet. What about the app? The Hangzhou app was the that one was developed by was it Alibaba? Like the one that we're using Hangzhou for like the green, yellow, and red QR codes and stuff. I read about that three weeks ago. I don't quite remember. I, I'm pretty sure it was developed in Hangzhou. I'm pretty sure probably. Okay. Okay. Also, you didn't get to use it. In there, like lots of technology stuff in Hangzhou that makes Hangzhou so. High tech yeah. is coming from yeah. Alibaba, so I'm pretty Hello. sure it's from there. Yeah. So that was uh, was after you left, right? You never get to see those things happening when you were in, yeah, no, in there. I, yeah, no, I already left. I just read about them. And I see like in friend groups who are trying to meet up again now that they have to, like they're reminding each other, don't forget to bring your green codes, da, 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 like, so right, it's, yeah. it's funny. Right, it's, yeah. it's really, it's really a part of their life all the time. Yeah. I don't yeah. really but I was uh, I was myself. looking in, into this because I'm I mean, I'm very interested in the use of QR codes because it's like um, it seems to me in Italy right now there is a basically my parents when they need to go out to, to buy groceries or whatever they have to download a form print it and write I'm going to the supermarket and then sign it and then carry this paper form so that the police if they stop them they show to the police the form and then they can go. So it's just like... Yeah, that's so the like, similar in some German places as well, yeah. Yeah, but it's just a, like a honor system and it's based on like a piece of paper. So to me, it seems like the QR code is not that different. It's just a diff like it's on your phone instead of being a piece of paper, but it's basically the same thing. Like you're saying, uh, I didn't travel. I stayed in Hangzhou for two months. I'm healthy. Uh, and then the police or the whatever community manager or whoever is looking at it just scans it and says okay you can go so it's, it seems a very similar thing yeah i'm not sure whether this was about korea or the hangzhou version but i remember that there was one one like one place had an app developed where you had a kind of a map where you could see where other like people who got tested positive or had 
been in contact with somebody who had been tested positive, you could see them on the map and you could watch where you were going and you could see people around you. I think um, that was Korea. I think there was the like <coughs> contact tracing. Um, like was it in to... real time? I would not be surprised if the Hangzhou app would like build in this feature as soon as they can as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. real time. It's real time. And they argue that it's not a big problem like in terms of discrimination because the COVID virus, like it's just, um, it's just going to be with you for a few weeks and then you're free of it again. It's not something that's going to stick with you for your yeah. whole life and you're yeah. going to be, yeah. Sorry to jump in, but Andrew has to go soon. And uh, oh yeah, I, I, would need, I want to ask him one last question. So uh, there has been, people has been talking about how the COVID is like created in a lab. So what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't believe in like conspiracy theories and stuff, but I, I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, anything's possible. And, and like, I think there's a lot of evidence that says that it's, it's, it's also entirely possible that it just came from environment like SARS and MERS. And because there's so many viruses that circulate in bats that transfer to a number of other animals like pangolins and, and like there's, which are so readily like hunted and available and a lot of humans interact with them wildly. There's a lot of vehicles for this virus to transmit from a bat to another animal to a human so i'd say i mean yeah maybe someone designed it in a in a in a lab although i think it's really hard to design this good of a virus mm. like for someone to design something that's deadly to so many people but that is asymptomatic to so many others is like you know what now that i'm thinking about it in that way I think it would be very, 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 very unlikely that someone could have designed a virus like this. Right, right. Because it's just so, it's so smart and infects you and causes an illness in such a unique way for some people and not for others. So, I mean, I kind of think that's bogus. I don't really like conspiracy theories. I've also read conspiracy theories that, like yesterday, someone sent me something and they're like, can you, like, like, what do you think about this? And it was saying that the coronavirus isn't real. It's like governments are pretending that something's going on, but really no one's dying. And it's all just like uh, media hype. So yeah, that argument goes around quite a bit. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah I think it's kind of crazy. I just want to go back to that uh, QR code thing. Yeah. So, so I've been using it for like a week because I've been going out every day for a week. Which one are you using? So the green. I mean, the they they have two. So basically, what happens is that uh, uh, this will probably change at some point. So right now, there are two systems: one on WeChat, one on Alipay. So yeah, it's basically like a a program inside the program, right? Like yeah, yeah. So. So you, you download the program onto WeChat and then you scan it. Uh, like there are checkpoints everywhere. So when I get yeah. out of my resident area, there's a checkpoint. So I scan it and then I confirm I'm going outside. So and then I get outside. It'll be like a yeah. green coat. So there will be like usually a security guard there checking it and then I can get out. And then, then uh, there's no checkpoints usually on the main road. So if you want to go into another residential area, you have to scan again. Uh, yeah. Technically, yeah. But, uh, you know, what happens a lot of time is that uh, they don't check you. So uh, I uh, so a lot of people I know just just scan the code and then they don't click confirm. So you have right. to scan yeah. the code and then uh, choose whether you're going inside or getting outside and then confirm then you send it so it goes into the system but you know you can scan it and do nothing <laughs> yeah so yeah. uh in that way you'll never get a red code because uh you never record a system you can't get a red code because uh, at the beginning the people reported glitches but this is sort of anecdote anecdotal evidence i don't know if it actually happened so people took 
Boston and got red cold uh, by the time they went home, but I don't know if it's true or not. That's probably true. I read similar things. So, yeah. So, I mean, so far, pretty much a nuisance, but I don't know it actually works because the checkpoints, the, the checkpoints covers, in, in many cases, they cover a really large area, mm-hmm. like, say, a shopping center, like a really big shopping center. They have like say two checkpoints. Uh, every time you get into the check uh, the shopping center, you have to scan your code and stuff. But you know the how does it work? They check the time you inside the space or whatever. But there are so many people inside the space. Are they gonna quarantine like five hundred people if they have like yeah. one confirmed case? It makes. No I don't sense know how. I don't know how they plan to use it. That's a problem. Like the, the the infrastructure is there, but I don't know what they want to do with it. Like if there is a person that is confirmed infected in the mall, then what they're gonna do? Are they gonna give red code to all the people in the mall for like an hour when that person was there? I don't know what's yeah. because supposedly you checking and check out. Like yeah. that's. That's so you have a sort of a timestamp. Yeah. But right now what happened they were doing is that you check in and then when you go outside of the area, they, they don't tell you to check out. You have to sort of really be like remember to do this. Otherwise, yeah, you have uh, to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes, yeah, you forget to even say public transport, we forget to touch off or something that happens to people. I mean, very often that then how does this system work? But also like things like if you take subway, if you take trains, those like interchanging stations and there were like hundreds of people in that like yeah now later there'll be thousands when people are more people going to work just the system is not really is really not efficient it, but i don't yeah, know if just they like, are using the because i tried to get one i tried to get the wechat one and so i got the mini program and then i did the registration thing i gave my details but then they said i needed a chinese phone number to proceed yeah like yeah yeah, yeah, need, yeah issuing yeah. that to a chinese number so i i cannot I cannot get a code, but so I'm wondering yeah. if you if you allow them to use your Chinese number, then they could go to like China Telecom or Unicom, whatever, and get your position not from GPS but from the phone, like from the SIM card roaming around. Well, but I don't know yeah, if they have this integration uh, already. Uh, you have to report your phone number, but you I mean like a lot of people use different phone numbers for the WeChat registration. In oh, my case, right. uh, I have two phone numbers, and uh, one of them used for my main account because yeah. I tried. That account, I tried to use that account to get the the QR code thing, but I couldn't uh, connect because mm. uh, my WeChat account is a Hong Kong account. I don't know why my oh, WeChat right. account is a Hong Kong account. Probably I registered when I was in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, it's not a mainland account, so you would not connect. So I had to, mm. I, I, I made a new account, uh, which is brand new, and then I, uh, you have to use your ID and shit. Then uh use because uh, I, I had to use another new phone number to make that account so uh a bit basically i i that you don't carry that phone purpose. around yeah. yeah but i basically have no no i can use one phone because i can which i can switch accounts right so yeah, but yeah, i have yeah. a sort of a dummy account just for the purpose of this this uh health code thing so and also every province has their own system so that's uh, another thing so it this is what I've been told from uh, by some. I called some people in Hangzhou. So what happens that after I go there, uh, with I'm supposed to come with. I'm supposed to have a certificate that says I'm. I mean, I'm. I, I'm not infected. Yeah. Uh, and then they will check it. I don't know how they authorize it. That process is unclear. And if they confirm it that I'm not positive, uh, so they will give me another green code that is for the city for Hangzhou. So they. Okay. So basically. They will transfer. I don't know how that works, but like they, they supposedly they transfer the data or create a new account for that 
for Zhejiang province or Hangzhou. So that's a different, that's a different, like under different jurisdiction. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, uh, so after that, uh, my record in Hubei would not I mean that's, uh, that basically become useless when I'm in Hangzhou. Yeah. But we yeah. have to be basically go through the process of, uh, of the, the sort of confirming that I'm not infected. Then I'm giving a sort of a new code for the city. Yeah. I wonder what happens when Mariana goes back, if she has to do the same thing in some way or if foreigners will have a different process. Yeah, I wonder whether I have to do this antibodies test or something. Yeah. Do you have your German one? Like, do you have a test result that you could use? No, I only have the positive one. And Mm. then I didn't, like... The rules are not like they're not allowing you to to do the negative tests anymore. Like okay. I could pay for it. Okay. I think it's two hundred euros or something. Right. But and I would have to probably do it when I want to come back. Like my school in China knows they they asked us to report every day where we are and how wow. our health condition wow. is. Okay. And okay. Um, at some point I was okay. I thought <laughs> I'd rather tell them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then yeah. then all of a sudden, like my 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 supervisor who never ever normally talks to me, all of a sudden talked to me, and all the, all kinds of people from the school contacted me and were like, "Oh, how are you doing? Like really sweet and caring." Oh, that's and, nice. Um, so they know now. So they know now. They know now. Okay. So they will. They're not telling me not to come back. Well, because they're telling all of us foreigners not to come back. To, oh, even the other students who are, went to their hometown inside of China, they're not supposed to come back to to school yet. I don't know what's going to happen once they. Yeah. Well, thanks to Andrew who already left, and thanks to Mariana for joining us this episode, which was super nice. Uh, and it was also great to have Joy back as a host sometimes. <laughs> And um, yeah, so uh, this was our 13th episode and uh, we keep reporting on the developments uh, around the coronavirus. And uh, probably our next episode will be about human geography, but we still have not uh, settled on topic and date, but you can keep listening. And we also want to thank a couple of our donors who sent us some support money to pay for our hosting. And I'll just remind all the listeners that they can also pitch in with a few bucks of whatever currency you use. Um, We'll put the link in our uh, episode description for our LiberaPay support. So, well, thanks, everyone. Um, It's been great to talk. Stay safe. Thank you. And take care. Yeah. Yeah. See you next. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.